Hey, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. This is the debut show of AM Live, where uh, I, Aaron Mate, will be talking about my reporting, responding to the news, and interacting with uh, the audience, taking questions and comments and any pushback you have. I'm really excited to be here. First, let me just check. Can everybody hear me okay? Yes. Okay, good. Um, I'm really excited to be here because this is the first opportunity <clears throat> that I've had really so far to interact with my audience, the people who follow my work, who support it, who disagree with me, agree with me. I've never really done anything interactive so far. The way journalism works traditionally is just you're insulated from your audience. You put it out and you hope that people read it and like it, but there's not really much opportunity for interaction, at least as I've done it so far. So I'm really, really excited to be doing this on Colin so I can interact with you uh, because I feel like there's not much point really in doing journalism if you can't, first of all, face accountability for it. People can't ask you questions. People can't share their criticisms if they have them. Um, and if you also just can't interact with people in a way that advances the conversation, you know, um, on the issues that I care about. It's just, uh, so I'm really, really excited to have the opportunity to do that here. And I'm looking forward to um, engaging with you on tonight's episode. So what I'm thinking of doing is basically just, I have a few topics in mind I wanted to discuss. They have to do with Russiagate. And after that, we'll open it up to questions and comments or debates if anybody wants to voice some criticism to me about anything. So right now we're in the midst of a of an interesting time when it comes to Russiagate, the the story I've spent a lot of time covering in the last four years, where finally there is some semblance of a reckoning for the reckless media behavior that guided Russiagate for its entirety. You know, nonstop innuendo conspiracy theories about Trump being compromised by Russia. Russia invading the United States with a bot army of hackers and trolls and brainwashing millions of Americans. Finally, there's a little bit of a reckoning going on right now with that. And that's because the Steele dossier, the collection of uh, Trump-Russia conspiracy theories funded by the Clinton campaign, really has collapsed in humiliating fashion. First, there was the December 2019 Inspector General report from Horowitz that found that the FBI – relied on the Steele dossier extensively, even though they knew that the corroboration for the Steele dossier was zero. And they knew that because very early on in 2017, they interviewed the Steele dossier's main source, a guy named Igor Danchenko. So already since December 2019, when that report came out, the Steele dossier has taken a huge hit. And now uh, it once again was further undermined when the main source, Igor Danchenko, was indicted by special counsel John Durham for lying to the FBI. And in that indictment, we got a whole bunch of new details, including that one of the key people who Danchenko claimed he had spoken to for the Steele dossier, in fact, had never he had never actually spoken to him at all. So Danchenko said he had spoken to this guy, Sergei Milian, who is a Belarusian-American who headed the Russian-American Chamber of Commerce, it turns out that they actually never even spoke. And another key source that Danchenko used was a guy named Charles Dolan, who is not in Russia. 
he's actually an American and he has deep ties to the Clinton uh, world. He chaired Bill Clinton's presidential campaign twice. He volunteered for Hillary. He was an advisor to Hillary. And it turns out he was one of the Steele dossier's key sources too, though perhaps not wittingly. It turns out that basically him and Denchenko were having conversations. Denchenko was taking those conversations and embellishing the contents to fit the Trump-Russia conspiracy narrative that was going into the Steele dossier. So that's humiliating, and it's caused a little bit of a reckoning. The Washington Post has edited a bunch of stories, significantly altered too, but basically it removed entire sections of stories, changed the headline, and added these very lengthy editor's notes that basically retract the story without officially retracting it, which is interesting. Instead of just outright retracting it, they're changing the entire content of the story, but they're not adding the words we retract. So it's that's cowardly in itself. So that's happening. But there's something else happening too, which is basically now there's this new effort to basically throw steel under the bus. So the narrative we're getting now from prominent media outlets and prominent pundits who pushed Russiagate is that, all right, steel, okay, that's fine. That's that's a That's like... That didn't work out. That turned out to be a bunch of lies. Okay, we admit that. But Steele is basically a sideshow. And the core Trump-Russia narrative, that there was a sweeping Russian interference campaign to install Trump, and Trump's associates were somehow tied or complicit in the campaign. That part is true. What they're basically saying is that even though Steele has been shown to be a liar— that he was still basically correct. That's what their argument is. It'd be kind of like if I accused a neighbor of mine who I don't like of robbing my apartment, and it turned out that I turned out, it turned out that I was actually inventing all of this and making it up. But yet, still, somehow, that neighbor actually did rob my apartment. Somehow, still, my lie turned out to be true. That's basically the narrative now. So, what I want to discuss briefly are two aspects of this which is that mainstream outlets like the New York Times and the Washington Post are trying to say that Steele didn't really play much into their reporting and that their reporting still bears out. And then you have pundits who've been very vocal in pushing the Trump-Russia conspiracy theory still really hang on to this narrative that there really was still a Trump-Russia conspiracy, even though the person who first advanced that conspiracy theory, Christopher Steele, turns out to be a fabricator. So when it comes to news outlets like the Washington Post and the New York Times, I just wrote this long piece at Real Clear Investigations going through five examples of Pulitzer Prize winning stories or Pulitzer Prize winning reporters who advanced the Trump-Russia narrative but didn't rely on steel. And the point I'm trying to make there is that basically steel or not, these stories are just as dubious. They also rely on basically um, biased partisan sources, and they spread falsehoods. And you can read it at Real Clear Investigations, and I've linked to it below. So I'm not going to go through all of them now, but I just want to go through some of the key ones because it's really – it's such a window into how disingenuous media reporting was throughout Russiagate and how, just like Steele, they were being used to advance a fabricated – Narrative. So the first example that I pick is really um, egregious because it was very consequential. It was in the Washington Post. A story from February 9th, 2017. The headline was 
National Security Advisor Flynn discussed sanctions with Russian ambassador, despite denials, officials say. And the thrust of the story is that basically that Michael Flynn had discussed in a series of phone calls with the Russian ambassador, Sergei Kislyak, in the month or so after the November 2016 election, that they had discussed sanctions at length. And the reason why this was important is because in response to Russia's alleged election meddling, President Obama at the end of December imposed these sanctions on Russia. He also expelled Russian diplomats, about 35 of them. But the main move was to impose these new sanctions on Russia. So what the Washington Post was saying, and they were saying this based on what they said was nine current and former U.S. officials. They were saying that basically Flynn and Kislyak, the Russian ambassador, had these extensive conversations about sanctions and that Flynn's message to Kislyak was essentially that don't worry, we're not going to really enforce these sanctions. So don't react too harshly. That basically these sanctions are going to be revisited when we get into office in a couple of weeks. And the thrust of this was that basically Flynn was essentially suggesting a quid pro quo to Russia for its alleged uh, election help, that basically because you helped us out in 2016, we're going to go easy with you on these sanctions and we're even going to lift them. That was the innuendo that this Washington Post report fueled. And that was the clear message of the intelligence officials who the Post interviewed. And this was very consequential because Flynn had initially denied discussing sanctions at all. Then he changed his answer in response to this story to basically say that now he couldn't remember whether he discussed sanctions or not. He said, I'm pretty sure we didn't discuss sanctions, but I can't be sure now. But facing all these former and current officials anonymously contradicting him, this created a major problem for Flynn. And because he basically changed his answer, this became a huge controversy. And four days later, after this Washington Post story, he resigned. And this set in motion a a series of other events that I'll, I'll, I'll talk about in the next story that basically led to the appointment of special counsel, Robert Mueller, because this action where this national security advisor has to resign for his conversations with Russia, that fueled this innuendo that there really was something to this floated idea of a Trump Russia conspiracy. The Flynn story was given a boost later that year when Flynn was indicted by Robert Mueller for lying to the FBI. And one of the things that Flynn pled guilty to was that he did admit to lying to the FBI about whether or not he discussed sanctions with Russia. So seemingly that vindicated the Post's story. But then something strange happened where basically after Flynn pled guilty, at a certain point he switched lawyers and he switched his plea. And then he went from admitting guilt to fighting the story, to fighting his own plea. And that culminated basically three years later in May 2020 when finally – after, after three years, it shouldn't have taken this long, but it did. The Flynn transcripts got released of his calls with Kislyak because these calls were wiretapped. And what do they show? They actually show no discussion of sanctions at all, except for one passing reference, where Kislyak, the ambassador, says that these sanctions might make it hard for us to fight insurgents in Syria. And Flynn responds, yeah, yeah. That's basically all he says. That's the entirety of these discussions about sanctions with the Russian ambassador. So it completely contradicts the Post's initial narrative that there were these extensive discussions between Flynn and Kislyak of sanctions. And what the Post sources and later Mueller did was they took Flynn's conversations with Kislyak about something different, which was expulsions, 
the expulsion of Russian diplomats. And they took those quotes and they made them, they basically took what Flynn said about expulsions and claimed that he had said them about sanctions. So basically they conflated sanctions with expulsions, which was completely disingenuous because sanctions and expulsions are totally different things. Sanctions are much more serious. They're hard to reverse and they're much more damaging. Expulsions, you expel someone, more, you know, more people can always come back. That can be reversed very quickly. So the story collapsed, but instead of acknowledging that they had conflated sanctions with expulsions, the, the Post actually claimed vindication. So for this story, I documented that, and I wrote the Post, and I noted to them that they had conflated sanctions with expulsions. And they admitted to me that that's what they had done, that when they said the word sanctions, they also mean not just sanctions but expulsions as well. So that is a case where media reporting was not just used to advance a narrative, but it was, it was actually used to create tangible developments, such as Flynn's resignation. It had a real impact. And still now, despite being told the actual contents of Flynn's calls, the Post is still not willing to admit, um, at least publicly, uh, that their story was wrong. That the, Privately to me, they admitted they conflated the two things, but publicly they haven't issued a retraction. So that's one really egregious case. Next example that I pick was just an even more flat out uh, fake story, which is from the New York Times from the day after Flynn resigned. So literally one day after Flynn resigns, this is February 14th, 2017. The New York Times comes out with this story. Trump campaign aides had repeated contacts with Russian intelligence. And the lead is extraordinary. It's, it's really amazing that this was printed. This is what the Times said. Phone records and intercepted calls show that members of Donald J. Trump's 2016 presidential campaign and other Trump associates had repeated contacts with senior Russian intelligence officials in the year before the election, according to four current and former American officials. Unquote. That's an amazing claim. The Times is saying, this is the paper of record, is saying that members of Donald Trump's campaign, Trump, who is now the president, had repeated contacts with senior Russian intelligence officials in the year before the election. Now, there's no evidence in the story to support this claim, and that's because it quickly became clear that the story was a fake. When Jim Comey testified four months later about the story, he said it was not true. Uh, A few years later, we got declassified notes from Peter Strzok, who's the agent who led the Trump-Russia counterintelligence probe. He also said we have no evidence of any contacts between Trump aides and Russian intelligence officials. And the Mueller report also contained zero examples or evidence of contacts between uh, Russian intelligence officials and the Trump campaign. But amazingly, the New York Times not only not corrected this story, but they've even claimed that it was confirmed. And the basis for that was when earlier this year, the Treasury Department put out a press release where they labeled someone named Konstantin Kalimnik, a Russian intelligence officer, and said that he had passed on polling data that he got from the Trump campaign from Manafort to Russia. And the Times then printed a story that same day that said that the Treasury's press uh, release, coupled with a Senate intelligence report that came out the previous year, that that confirms the Times reporting, which is pretty amazing for many reasons. First of all, the Treasury press release had no evidence in it. Second of all, um, even if you assume that the Treasury press release is true, that Constant Kalimnik really is a Russian spy, and there's plenty of evidence to dispute that, which I'll talk about in a bit, even if you accept that that's true, 
the time story was that there were repeated contacts between Trump aides and, quote, senior Russian intelligence officials, not just one guy, but multiple people and at, and at a senior level. So even by their own standards of their story, the Times is still can't even claim that it's confirmed, you know, even if the Klemek thing is true. But of course, it's it's not. So what we're looking at here is a pretty extraordinary level of hubris and denialism. And it shows that basically Steele is low-hanging fruit. And what they're going to do now is basically make Steele out to be the only problem with the Russiagate reporting. That, okay, fine, Steele was wrong, but the rest of us were right. And in fact, what they're going to do actually, because the main source for Steele was a guy named Igor Danchenko, who was Russian, what the new line is that basically Steele was a victim of Russian disinformation. Because there's always a way to blame Russia when you're Russiagating. And uh, the Steele case is no exception. So that's the news side of this. And my article goes through three more examples of Pulitzer Prize winning reporting that has nothing to do with Steele, but is just as reckless and, <laughs> and thinly sourced, and I think false. So what pundits are doing now, people like David Korn, David Frum, Jonathan Chait, um, what they're saying is that basically – even though uh, Steele was wrong, that the core Trump-Russiagate narrative was right. And they're going through – they've adduced a whole series of other tidbits that they think proves that there was a Trump-Russia conspiracy. And the main one really is the one I mentioned before, this guy Konstantin Kalimnik. He is – does have a Russian passport. He was born in Ukraine, but he does have a Russian passport. He did work with Paul Manafort. And I've written extensively about him. I've actually interviewed him earlier this year. And the reason why I think he's proved to be so uh, front and center now is because he's basically one of the few people in Russiagate who's actually Russian. Because for all the talk that we've heard about Trump contacts with Russia, there's actually very few Russians. There's those Russians who were in the Trump Tower meeting in June 2016, and we all know what came of that, nothing. Uh, and then there's Konstantin Kalimnik. And I think because he's a Russian, he's been turned into you know a key – character in the Russiagate reality show. And he's been turned into somehow a Russian intelligence officer. The Senate Intelligence Committee called him that and the Treasury Department called him that. And so now people like David Korn and Max Boot, they're running with that. But what's interesting is none of them address the fact that the most comprehensive investigation of Trump Russia, the Mueller report, did not call Konstantin Kalimnik a Russian spy. All they said about him was that he is vague quote, ties to Russian intelligence. They don't define what those ties are. They just say he has ties, but that can mean anything. Like I'm, I might have in my lifetime spoken to someone who is connected to Russian intelligence for all I know. Does that mean I have Russian intelligence ties? It's incredibly ambiguous. And what's funny is one of the key pieces of evidence that Mueller presented to support his claim that Kalimnik has Russian intelligence ties is false. Uh, and I proved that earlier this year in an article I wrote for Real Clear Investigations, where basically Mueller says that Kalimnik traveled to the U.S. in 1997 on a Russian diplomatic passport. And the thing with intelligence officers is often they will travel to countries under diplomatic cover. So it's very common for you know a Russian spy to get a diplomatic passport and travel to the U.S. with that cover. So Mueller's suggestion there was that because Kalimnik traveled to the U.S. with a Russian diplomatic passport, that that, that that could mean that he is really a Russian intelligence officer or is working with Russian intelligence. But 
I got Kalimnik's actual visa that he was given by the U.S. on the same date that Mueller says he was given a diplomatic passport. And that visa, and I, I published this, was a regular passport. It was a regular visa for a normal tourist. And he was traveling under a, re- a regular passport, which I also showed. And when I contacted the members of the Mueller team, they didn't respond. When I contacted the FBI, they didn't respond. And when I FOIA'd the visa record from the State Department trying to get a copy, their copy of that visa, because all I had was Columbus' copy, they told me that that visa record had been destroyed. So they don't have it anymore, which is pretty interesting. So basically, as far as we know, based on the evidence that I got, the main piece of evidence that Mueller has for not even calling Kalimnik a Russian spy, but just vaguely saying he has Russian intelligence ties, is false. Mueller got it wrong. And the FBI, when they describe Kalimnik today, they do not call him a Russian spy. They only refer to him as someone who has vague, unspecified Russian intelligence ties. So even by the standards of Mueller, who, you know, for a long time was the patron saint for Russia Gators, their main thing now, which is that this guy Kalimnik, they say, is a Russian spy, is not supported. And it just underscores that despite the, you know, how many bombshells have collapsed, how many times Russia Gators have been humiliated, it still uh, it has not sunk in, not just to these pundits who, you know, promoted these Trump-Russia conspiracy theories for so long, but even to the Pulitzer Prize-winning outlets like the New York Times and the Washington Post. They're still hanging on to the narrative. And I suspect it will, unless we get a, a whole bunch of new disclosures that are just as embarrassing, that things are not going to shift just because this narrative is so important to too many people in power. You know, the Democratic Party used this as their excuse to avoid reckoning with the fact that they lost to Trump. The national security state used this for their own reasons because they saw Trump, I think, not as a suitable steward of the U.S. empire. And also, sometimes he said the wrong thing. Sometimes he was too honest about what the U.S. was doing around the world. And that, that, that's not good to have. If you're the national security state who likes to keep, you know, your endeavors, your dealings, your, your dirty wars, your operations around the world sort of undercover. Uh, and for the media, too, this was a, a wonderful thing. It saved many people's jobs in media. Um, people at flagging at shows where ratings were flagging. I mean, this saved people's jobs. So this whole thing, this Russia thing was just too big to fail for people who are too powerful. And that's why even though something as humiliating as the steel dossiers collapse. It will make a dent, but we're still going to see ways to hold on to the narrative. So that is my opening blurb. I want to bring in people now who have questions and comments. Uh, David, you are the first in line, so I will bring you in now. Are you there, David? No. Okay, that didn't work. I will. Well, there's another David in line. It's David Sachs. I will bring you in now. Um, okay, here we go. Hey, Aaron. Yeah, you made me a speaker. Um, you can just, um, you know, uh, there should be a, an action for make next caller and then uh, brings up the next caller without putting them on the stage. But in any event, it gotcha. doesn't matter. Gotcha. I think the other David must have accidentally hung up when he meant to unmute. Um, but anyway, we'll work through all these technical issues. But uh, welcome to the platform. Great, 
great for, to see you here. And um, I have, you know, I, the question I'd like to ask is I've got a bestie who has Trump derangement syndrome, and he thinks that some aspects of this Russiagate thing must be real. And, you know, after I point out that the Steele dossier was a total hoax and then Alpha Bank and all the way down, you know, he the one thing he always points to is that Manafort, uh, you know, was convicted. So can you, like, explain that? Like, what is does, – does Manafort's conviction prove anything with respect to Trump and Russiagate? How, how, what's the correct answer to that? Thanks, David. Thank you for that question. You know, it's funny. The, um, the best summation of the Manafort case actually came from the judges in both of his case. He was tried in two different courts. He was tried in Washington, D.C. and also in the Eastern District of Virginia. And both the judges in those cases said that this case has nothing to do with Russia or collusion. Uh, <laughs> what they were actually about was like the Mueller team brought charges against Manafort under some really arcane lobbying laws. Not that Manafort wasn't guilty. I mean, it's pretty clear that he was. But basically, they brought cases against Manafort that had nothing to do with Trump or Russia. They had to do with Ukraine, and they were about his lobbying activities, and they were about taxes. So everyone should pay their taxes. Manafort got caught. He was guilty. But if you look at the way the Mueller team brought that case, they were incredibly aggressive they portrayed what he had done as some sort of like betrayal of the United States when really it was just like standard lobbying that everybody in D.C. does, um, not registering in some cases, not reporting that you're acting on behalf of certain interests. And the irony, by the way, of, of this case was that documents from it proved that Manafort, when he was in Ukraine, was actually furthering the interests, the stated interests of the U.S. and not Russia because – at that time, and this was a, Ukraine was a very big deal between the U.S. and Russia. There was sort of like a tug of war where there were, you know, the government of Yanukovych, who, who who Manafort worked for, it wanted to have it both ways. It wanted to make you know nice with Russia because Russia's Ukraine's neighbor, and there's also a large percentage of the population that identifies with Russia. But it also wanted to make nice with the West because Ukraine's also part of Europe, and there's also a big part of Ukraine, big percentage of the population that that hates Russia. And identifies with Europe. So, so um, Yanukovych was trying to make it a deal with everybody. But the problem is, you know, according to my analysis, some people might disagree with this, but basically the US and, and the EU did not want that. And Yanukovych was faced with a choice do you go with the EU or do you go with Russia? And that set off a series of events that led to Yanukovych's ouster in a coup in 2014. But what's funny is Manafort. According to documents released by the Mueller team, he crafted a whole plan that was all about Ukraine joining the West orbit, that moving away from Russia, joining the EU. And, you know, he had messaging planned out, trying to convince the EU that Yanukovych was like, you know, was one of them and was moving away from Russia. So in terms of what the Manafort case had to do with Trump and Russia and collusion, the only real tangible connection was that it showed that Manafort, when he was working in Ukraine, was trying to move Ukraine out of Russia's orbit and into the West. And I reported on that. The documents are all there. The, there was extensive documents released by the Mueller team showing Manafort's internal documents on this. But again, because this was inconvenient to the narrative that somehow Manafort was close with Putin and doing his bidding, it just didn't get reported. Thank you for that. Can I ask one other question? Of course. Yeah, so 
you know, I think uh, Glenn Greenwald's pointed out in his writing that there's probably no figure in American politics more lionized um, than Robert Mueller um, in the time leading up to his report. Um, you know, the uh, all the politicians and reporters who wanted um, his report to be the bombshell that it ended up not being, um, you know, had, had sort of built him up into this, you know, great figure. And then once his report was sort of a, a, a nothing burger for them, um, you know, I mean, how do you rate Mueller did? I mean, should he be applauded in a way for not fabricating, you know, charges that didn't exist? I mean, should he get credit for that or should he have brought the whole thing to a, should he have wrapped it up much sooner? I mean, how do you, I guess, how do you evaluate his, his performance and what, what he should have done? Well, it's a mixed picture. And Andrew Weissman, who was like the key Mueller prosecutor who really pushed the whole Trump-Russia conspiracy thing, he really tried hard to make that thing look legitimate. He's actually attacked his colleagues um, after the fact. He said that one colleague in particular named Aaron, Aaron Ziegley, I think his name was, um, and basically, Andrew Weissman accused him of, of thwarting the Mueller probe and preventing the team from getting to the real truth about the Trump-Russia conspiracy. So there obviously was some dissension within the ranks. Um, and, but overall, though, I think that the Mueller investigation was a farce. They, they knew early on. By the way, it's Aaron Zebley. Yeah, this is the Aaron Zebley. Um, so the Mueller team knew early on that they had no Trump-Russia conspiracy. And they could have told that to the public, but they didn't. Instead, they brought a series of indictments against people like George Papadopoulos, Rick Gates, Paul Manafort, Roger Stone. And these indictments were like from a point of view of like a, a creative. They're really impressively written because they give you the impression that the Mueller team is closing in on some kind of Trump-Russia conspiracy. And that's, what, that's the way the media characterized it. But there's all this qualified hedge language sort of thrown in that makes you realize there's nothing there. But they successfully gave the impression that they really had something. And look, look at the indictment we just got from John Durham. He indicted Igor Nenchenko, who was you know, still Dossier's key source, as I, as I discussed before. And what is he indicted for? Lying to the FBI. And when did he lie to the FBI? In early 2017, while the Mueller investigation was happening. So I'm pretty positive that the FBI knew pretty early on that Igor Danchenko was lying to them. But if that's true, why was he not indicted back then? And why were all these other Trump associates indicted for lying in a way that basically furthered the Trump-Russia conspiracy narrative? I think that's because the Mueller team ultimately was not interested in doing a real investigation, but in advancing a narrative. I think they hated Trump. Certainly Andrew Weissman, the, the key prosecutor, hated Trump. He's Turned out, you know, after he left the Mueller team, he became a comp, he, he became an analyst on MSNBC. And so I think they knew early on they had nothing. I think they knew early on that people were lying to them. But uh, they didn't indict those people because that would have interfered with the narrative that they were pursuing. So overall, I mean, I don't know to what extent Mueller was involved because his performance at the congressional hearing in July 2019 suggested to me that he wasn't very checked in. But regardless, I. I mean, the overall team, I think the investigation was um, ridiculous and they could have shut it down way early and they could have indicted people for actual crimes such as Igor Danchenko, who's only being indicted now for a lie he allegedly told four years ago. 
And I just think that that's very suspicious. That the Mueller team never brought that charge. I mean, it almost raises the question of why they didn't actually keep going with it. I mean, wh- why did the report turn out to kind of fizzle out the way it did? Why didn't they get even more creative in the production of that report? I think it's two things. I think, first of all, they did all they could. I mean, they got like George Papadopoulos, who's a low-level Trump volunteer. They almost indicted Jerome Corsi, who's like a right-wing uh, I don't even know what to call him. Conspiracy theorist. Like they almost, they almost indicted him, but he called their bluff. They actually wrote up an indictment of Jerome Corsi and he called their bluff and he said, I'm not going to sign this. And they ultimately backed down, which I think if other people had done that, they might not have gotten indicted, it, but his, but Jerome Corsi's um, plea, uh, like the draft plea is available on the internet, but uh, basically the mother team backed down on, on trying to prosecute him. So, and they indicted Roger Stone, for uh, allegedly lying to the House. And it looks like Roger Stone did. But what's funny is Roger Stone didn't even get interviewed by the Mueller team. He only was interviewed by the House. Yet Mueller indicted him for lying to the House Intelligence Committee. And why? And why didn't Mueller even try to interview him? Because the whole thing with with Roger Stone was that he was a potential back channel to WikiLeaks. And the way Mueller wrote that indictment, it made it look as if there might be some kind of back channel. But ultimately, again, the way the hedge language is included, it shows that they really have nothing. And um, just like they didn't interview Roger Stone, Mueller also didn't interview Julian Assange, which is really curious. Why would you not interview this figure who is really at the heart of this whole thing? Because Russiagate starts with the allegation that Russia stole the Democrats' emails and gave them to WikiLeaks. So why would you not want to interview the guy who published, who received and published those stolen emails allegedly from Russia? In the same way, Mueller also never tried to interview Constant Kalimnik, who I talked about before. There's such a, a curious disinterest in so many key players here. And the reason why, to me, is obvious, is that Mueller team was not interested in really pursuing a real investigation, that they were just there to push a narrative. And I think they extracted as much out of it as they could and ultimately had to shut down. And probably, you know, when Bill Barr came in in November 2018, that probably changed things too. Whereas before they were under the jurisdiction of Rod Rosenstein, who was pretty lax from from what I hear. And I imagine that Bill Barr put more pressure on them to, to wrap things up. But really, after two years, no allegations over anything to do with the Trump-Russia conspiracy it's um, it would have taken a lot more creativity to drag that out even longer. All right. Thank you. Uh, great to have you on call in and I'm going to get off the stage now because it looks like there's a lot of other people online to ask questions. So thank you very much. Bye. Thanks, David. Thank you. Okay. Sean, you are next. And a reminder, when I bring you on to unmute your microphone. Okay, Sean, we lost you too. So that's that's uh, two out of three we've lost. So when I bring you in next, William, you're next. Remember to, um, remember to unmute your microphone and look out for whatever option is there for you to speak. I'm not totally familiar with the interface you'll see, but hopefully it will pop up for you. So I'm going to bring you in now, William, and remember to un- unmute your microphone. Hello, can you hear me? 
Yes, uh, yes. we can hear you. The one weird thing was when I, while I was you know on cue, it, my phone popped up that in the settings you have to allow Colin to turn your uh, microphone to allow Colin to use your microphone. So that might be the problem. I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. Okay. Okay. Um, and uh, you know, hiring. I love what you do. I actually met you uh, about three times in various events in around New York. Jimmy Dore show, and I'm the guy that always brings up Bertrand Russell. But uh, if you remember, but anyway, um, uh, what I wanted to ask you is, do you get a sense? I grew up in New York. All my friends and colleagues all bought into the whole RussiaGate thing, and I always felt alone. And really appreciated your work in, and you know, Greenwald's and Matt Taibbi's in in informing me. What do you do? You get a sense of people in the Midwest, say, in other parts of the country, not the coastal elites, that are Democratic-leaning, that read the New York Times and the Atlantic. What are their... Do you get a sense of what their feeling is on Russiagate? That's a great question. I'd love to actually find that out. I, have, um, I haven't done that kind of field research, so I don't know. I, what I do know is if you're among the couple million people who watch MSNBC religiously you were probably pretty dialed in because like if that's your main news source and all you're getting every single day is that the president is a Russian agent. I mean, what else are you going to think? You know, obviously you put trust in these anchors and that's all they give you because of course there was no, there, there was no like dissent allowed. Like no one like me would ever be allowed anywhere near a network like MSNBC, but I would love to know what they think now. I mean, certainly I, like just from my interaction with people on social media, there's a lot of people out there who still really believe it. Now, I don't know, you know, um, what demographic they're from, where they are, but that actually would be, I'd love to see a survey of people in different locations and, you know, different income brackets uh, based on their news sources, what their beliefs are now. Because certainly, certainly look for during the height of Russia gate, uh, it was, it was widespread. I mean, it, for me too, it was a very lonely time. Like, uh, it was, it was very, very time. And I, and I lost some friendships over it and some professional relationships. People who I worked with for a long time just completely bought into it. And there was no, there was no room for sober, rational thought. But I wonder now if that's changed at all with so many things collapsing, you know, with the embarrassment around Christopher Steele and the failure of the Mueller probe. I, I'd love to see a poll on that. But in terms of answers that I can give you now, unfortunately, I, I don't have much insight into that. Yeah, I'm, I'm, it, it's interesting to me because, you know, during the elections, most Democrats, they, they kind of downplayed Russiagate for that short period of time. You know, it makes you think that the rest of the country doesn't feel like, you know, a lot of people in, in the coastal elites do, areas do. And, and what my only last thing, and I'll get off, is what... You know, after nine, after weapons of mass destruction fell through, you had some, you know, significant portion of the left pushing back where New York Times had to do a me culpa. It doesn't seem to be happening here. Do you see anywhere where they, where they can do a real have a real, you know, quote unquote reckoning like they, they did after 9-11, even even if they just, you know, dumped it all on Judith Miller, you know, something like that. Mm. You know. First, on your point about the midterms, that's such a good point, and I forgot that. But I remember at the time noticing just how completely absent Russiagate was from the midterms. And it was so interesting. Like, here you have, on the one hand, 
throughout you know Trump's term for the first two years, the number one issue for Democrats is Russiagate. That's all they talk about. That's all MSNBC covers. That's it overshadows everything else. But yet when it comes time to actually like win over voters, <laughs> the one time you need to like really count on voters, they didn't talk about they didn't talk about it at all. And that was such a mm-hmm. uh, commentary on really how seriously they took Russiagate, how really actually they felt about it. And really, uh, it was like the answer was they just saw it as like it was a political tool to be used to avoid being a real opposition party, to avoid like presenting a real alternative to Trump. And then when it came time to like get people's votes, then you could talk again about like, you know, issues that matter to people. And uh, and uh, and all that and and forget what you've been screaming about for the last two years. But that was such a revealing window into how seriously they actually took Russiagate when they completely abandoned it, when they needed to win to win over voters. Um, and in terms of a reckoning, I don't think we'll see the same kind of reckoning like we saw with uh, Iraq WMDs for two things, for two reasons. One is in, unless we get evidence that like completely disproves the claim that Russia stole the emails then it will always just linger. I mean, and I've poked holes in that narrative and I've talked about all the countervailing evidence like CrowdStrike, which is the Clinton contractor that generated the Russian hacking allegation, them privately admitting that they had no evidence that these alleged Russian hackers actually stole anything from the DNC servers. But of course, that huge admission by CrowdStrike has never been reported anywhere in the mainstream, like nowhere in the New York Times Nowhere in the Washington Post, not by CNN or MSNBC. I've reported it at Real Clear Investigations in the gray zone. But otherwise, it just doesn't get acknowledged because it's so damning to the narrative. But unless we get something that's even more damning, like, you know, uh, we like, like something that's dispositive, that's dispositive, that shows that Russia didn't do it, I think that will always be just used as the reason to keep up with the narrative that Russia is the reason why we got Trump, that Russia waged the sweeping interference campaign because even when Mueller dropped the case against the social media firm that was supposedly brainwashed Americans into voting for Trump, it didn't matter. You know, even when Trump, even when Mueller quietly admitted he had no evidence tying that troll farm to the Russian government. And even when, according to the Senate intelligence committee, that the, these Russian social media ads had nothing to do with the election, basically. I mean, that's what their own studies found. It doesn't matter because the narrative, unfortunately, it's like, it's even more – it's far more important to the U.S. establishment than Iraq WMDs was. Iraq, Iraq WMDs was a narrative that was needed to justify a war, but it served its purpose. The war happened, right? So it just – when it collapsed, there wasn't a huge consequence except for a, to a couple of journalists like Judy Miller for mainstream outlets to admit fault. Okay, you know, this was, the, this was Judy Miller's fault. You know, she – got in over her skis. She did a bad reporter. They threw, under the bu- they threw her under the bus. In the case of Russiagate, it's too big to fail. It's every major outlet, and it's reinforcing a narrative that allows them to basically avoid looking at the real dysfunctions of the U.S., the real factors that gave rise to Trump, and to blame everything on Russia. And there's just too many people who benefit from that narrative. And so that's why I think Absent some huge smoking gun revelation, which is possible, you never know, um, we're not going to see a reckoning. Yeah, th- thanks so much for answering those questions. I'll, do I do anything to get off? Or Let's see. I can, um, I can take you off now, and I can add somebody else. 
So, so thanks. Thank you, Owen. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much. All right, Tom, you're up. And a reminder to mute, to unmute your microphone. So Tom, you're up, but yeah, yeah, there you go. Oh, yeah, now we can hear you. Yes, hi. Um, considering that Assange is probably key to this case and that Mueller didn't, you know, bother to question him, I mean, do you, and do you think that maybe, you know, was Assange irresponsible when he went on Fox News and brought up, I mean, Assange has always been right. What, have you ever thought that maybe he's actually that the whole reason he's still being tortured to death in a prison is because he actually knows the truth about that? I know people don't like to talk about it, and it's kind of like a conspiracy theory. But I mean, you're an investigative journalist. There's a lot in that story that just doesn't add up. Okay, Tom, you cut out a little bit. So when you said was Assange irresponsible when he brought up on Fox News, it, then it cut out. So um, maybe finish that sentence. Was he irresponsible when he brought up Seth Rich's name? Right. Yeah. Well, look, I think that's a fair question. Um, If Seth Rich was not his source, and there's no evidence so far that Seth Rich was his source, then I think you could plausibly argue that it was irresponsible. What Assange's point was, I tried to explain later, was that Seth Rich had been – his name had surfaced publicly as a potential source for WikiLeaks. And so because of that, Assange felt that he wanted to basically speak out in defense of WikiLeaks' sources and talk about the danger that they felt. And he wanted to address that, you know, he wanted to basically um, undercut any potential danger that a future WikiLeaks source might feel. That was the explanation that we got from Assange and WikiLeaks. And, but look, given the fact that Seth Rich was murdered, um, I think you can very make a, and, and if Assange was not willing to reveal who the source of the DNC emails was, except for saying that it wasn't Russia, then I, I do think, I mean, personally, if you want my opinion, yes, I do think that it was irresponsible to bring up Seth Rich in that way um, because Assange is not, you know, has a longstanding policy not to reveal sources. And that's fine. I mean, that's a totally fair thing. Journalists don't reveal sources. But if that's the case, then to invoke Seth Rich, I think you could say it was irresponsible. And in terms of why he's still languishing in prison, I think, um, you know, it's hard to know what goes on in the minds of, of uh, people inside the U.S. government, what exactly guides them. But certainly they've hated Assange for a long time for exposing their war crimes and their secrets. And definitely when Assange humiliated the Democratic Party in 2016, that definitely earned him some, some new enemies or, or some even more uh, antagonized enemies inside the Democratic Party. And uh, what they're doing to him is is monstrous. And I hope one day he does tell us more about who his source was for the emails in 2016. Because, that, I mean, that episode has been so consequential. It, it, it's not just about one election. It's also seriously damaged U.S.-Russia relations, which is, you know, a major thing when you're talking about the world's top two nuclear powers. It's, it's had all sorts of adverse consequences. And so... If Assange can shine some light on that, maybe not reveal his source, but provide some information indicating who wasn't his source. And by the way, what's interesting is he's actually made that offer before. There were some talks between Assange and the U.S. government in 2017 where Assange said that he could reveal information 
that could rule out certain state actors. That was his offer. But, and this is according to reporting in The Hill from John Solomon, uh, Jim Comey intervened and stopped those talks, much in the same way that Robert Mueller never tried to interview Assange. Jim Comey inter- interfered and prevented the U.S. from negotiating with Assange about Assange releasing information that could help us, that, that could help sh- uh, shine some light on who his source was in 2016. So I hope, I hope one day he has a chance to, to do that. And certainly that starts with freeing him from his uh, torturous imprisonment right now. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. Okay. Thank you Jesse, so much. Jesse, you're up next. I'll bring you in now. And we lost Jesse. And I apologize if um, that's something on my end. But Jesse and anybody else who's been lost in the queue, I hope you'll jump back in and I'll bring you back on. Okay, James, you're up next. Bringing you in now. All right, James, you're on, but just unmute your microphone. So, James, if you can hear me, you are on, but we can't hear you. So you need to unmute your microphone. All right, I'm going to remove James. And James, if you can hear me, I hope you will rejoin the queue and I'll bring you back. And just just remember to unmute your microphone when you come back on. Okay, Sean, you're up next. Hey, Aaron, can you hear me? Yes, hi, Sean. Perfect, thanks. Uh, Yeah, thanks for, uh, you know... Um, all, all the work you've been doing on this and kind of sticking to your guns on it, for lack of a better term. Um, I had one particular uh, question that's something that I don't think has really gotten the attention it deserves, which is that um, basically uh, Sidney Powell, when she was working on Michael Flynn's case, it was, it was really shocking to me that, like, I think it was a month after uh, Bill Barr and John Durham traveled to Italy, as it was reported. She filed this motion for discovery for two of apparently Joseph Mifsud's blackberries and not just said, you know, um, I, I hear that you have two blackberries. It was basically leaked to her. And it's kind of uh, the pattern of uh, John Durham's investigation. that There hasn't really been many leaks. But it seems that this came from his office. Uh, she included the serial numbers, et cetera, et cetera, and said this has exculpatory information about Michael Flynn. This seemed really weird to me because apparently, you know, this thread about George Papadopoulos and Alexander Downer had really not intersected with anyone uh, who was working on the campaign. And, you know, it, it doesn't really seem that he communicated with, with anyone about um, that vague accusation or insinuation that they had, that the Russians had uh, dirt on Hillary Clinton in the form of emails. 
this really stuck out to me because it seems like someone within the Department of Justice saw what was on those phones and leaked it to Sidney Powell, um, basically to include in the motion for discovery. I'm not sure if you had the same impression, but I'd love to know what your thoughts are on that because to me this really sticks out, and I don't, I just don't think it's gotten enough attention. So I'd love to hear your thoughts. Thanks, Sean. So just a bit of background for people who aren't familiar with the various names that were um, floated here by Sean. Joseph, Joseph Massoud is this Maltese professor who basically was the official predicate for the Trump-Russia probe. The official story is that he meets with George Papadopoulos, who's a Trump campaign volunteer in London, and he tells him that Russia apparently has some dirt on Hillary Clinton that they might release during the campaign to help Trump. And then Papadopoulos then blurts this out to a Australian diplomat named Alexander Downer a few weeks later. And Downer, when he hears that, sends this to the U.S. government. And when the FBI gets this, that's when they open up the Trump-Russia investigation into not just Papadopoulos, but basically the entire Trump campaign, which is, I think, a very uh, sketchy origin story. There's a lot to question about it, including that basically – I mean, look – what the FBI says that they thought was that this was potential evidence that the Trump campaign had advanced knowledge of the stolen Democratic Party emails. The problem with that, though, is that this tip that they got from Downer has no mention at all of the Democratic Party emails. All it is is that Downer says that Papadopoulos suggested some kind of suggestion that Russia could help Trump. It's incredibly vague. And I have a hard time believing that that really was the basis for the FBI opening up a unprecedented counterintelligence investigation of a, pres- of a presidential campaign. It doesn't make sense to me, but I mean, that's what the official story is. So Sidney Powell, who's the lawyer for Michael Flynn, in some motions in the Flynn case, she claimed that the U.S. government um, via the special counsel now investigating the origins of the Trump-Russia probe, John Durham, has obtained Joseph Massoud's phones. And she said that, and I have never seen it contested, but I've also seen no evidence for it. So it's it's hard for me to comment because I just don't know. I can't I – can't, I don't know if it's true or not. And the problem with Sidney Powell is, on the one hand, when it comes to Michael Flynn's case and proving that the government lied, essentially, as I talked about before, when they said that Flynn had lied about sanctions when really he didn't. He didn't talk about sanctions at all. Sidney Powell was 100% right. And she deserved to win that case. But Sidney Powell also advanced a number of conspiracy theories uh, around the 2020 election that I think are ridiculous and insane. So I, in terms of how I, what I do then with her making this claim now, I, I don't know. Um, you know, it's, yeah. Well, the claim is, you know, it, it's really tough because like when you read the discovery motion, it's not just, there are two blackberries that includes model numbers, uh, SIM card numbers and IMEI numbers, which are, you know, it's a very bizarre thing to include all that information in a discovery motion if you just are sitting down and making it up out of your imagination. Uh, I, I guess time will tell, at least I hope. That's uh, the problem. It's like it's it, it's hard to comment without evidence of it. And I agree. It certainly seems strange that she'd go to the trouble to lay out all this information if it wasn't true. But this, the problem is, from from my point of view, she also did push really ridiculous things about the 2020 election, you know, voting machines made in Venezuela or whatever it was that I just think are ridiculous. So it's like, 
I don't know which Sidney Powell was was speaking here. Now, certainly there's so much shadiness around Joseph Masood and the Trump Russia investigation. And the official explanation for how it was opened, as I just talked about, is so sketchy that I tend to believe that there is something really strange going on with Masood, but it's just um we need to hear more. And I um from everything I hear about John Durham is he's done a really uh, diligent investigation. So I do expect we'll get some answers on that when he, whenever he comes out with his report. And uh, if I, if I can just uh, ask one more question, which is that apparently I, I've just, there's a lot of information. It's hard for one person to know, but I've seen people say that the New York times has had unredacted versions of the FISA applications for a long time and hasn't really reported on them. Is that just a rumor or is that established? It's honestly more for my own edification than anything else. And thanks a lot. I couldn't tell you. I haven't heard that, but, um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised. I, I guess we'll find out. That's the thing. It's the, that's the problem with this thing is there's so many things, as much information as there is, there's so much we don't know. And from what I know about Durham, he's on to a lot of different things. Uh, this actually, from everything I can tell and from what I've heard from my sources, this really is a serious investigation. And for example, there are things that came out in his recent indictment of Denchenko that we didn't know about. You know, I'd never heard the name Charles Dolan before, who was a key subsource for Denchenko. So I expect we'll have many disclosures like that coming up soon. Great. Thanks a lot. Thank you. All right. Janaid, you are next. Hey, Aaron, can you hear me? I can, yes. <laughs> Aaron, uh, what can I say? Kudos to continue uh, for continuing to persevere and persist in exposing um, and debunking all of the stuff that routinely comes out, although you're, you're right, perhaps there is a moment of, of reckoning right now. And I mean, I'd just like to say, sitting you know, in Pakistan and generally abroad, this, this whole thing has been rather comical. I mean, I, we, we sometimes wonder how how this can be taken so seriously within the United States. Anyways, it's been good entertainment for, for us abroad. But, but Aaron, let me just ask you, um, one of the things that's perplexed uh, many of us here is what the Republican Party and the Republican establishment, as well as perhaps the, the base, the social base of, of Trump, how is, what has been their uh, reaction throughout the, you know, throughout the Trump years and I guess even afterwards to this whole Russiagate thing? I mean, because we, we obviously perceive the Republican Party as the, the real hawks and something like this, one would have thought that they would have kind of also, I mean, even though Trump is, is their guy, but would have been at least concerned about uh, and, and, you know, some of us do think that perhaps there was maybe a tinge of, uh, of perhaps racism involved. Well, this is Russia. If, if this was, say, for example, China or some, some other country, maybe they would not have been as generous towards Trump. So, so one is that, Aaron, if you could kind of give us a sense of what the Republican Party, as well as the base, uh, of, of Trump, how have they responded to some something so explosive? I mean, obviously, we know it's not true. I mean, because of your your almost single handedly <laughs> debunking of it. But assuming that obviously they they watch the same propaganda, uh, why were they not as hawkish as the Democrats? That's one. And Aaron, the second thing, of course, your reporting on Syria has been equally stellar. I'm wondering, 
did you at any point discern any direct connection between the entire Russiagate crusade as well as the entire crusade on on Syria? So uh, again, Aaron, uh, thanks for all you do. Thanks, Junaid. It's great to hear from you. I interviewed you a about four years ago, if I remember correctly, right? That's right. That's, that's right. right. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Right. yeah. Um, you know, the, first of all, the Syria connection to me is really interesting, and it's nothing I can prove, but I've long suspected that Syria played a major role in the Russiagate thing, because think about it. Trump, during his campaign in 2016, that was Trump really at his most honest, and he was saying things like he, was, he destroyed the Bush dynasty, during the presidential primary, he blamed the Bushes for 9-11, talked about the Iraq war, and he won. And, you know, Jeb Bush was humiliated, and mm. that was devastating for the Bush family. And then during the campaign, his opponent is Hillary Clinton, who's sort of the epitome of Democratic Party hawkishness, you know, liberal interventionism. And, you know, some of her big things were Syria and Libya. And he was vicious in attacking her for Syria and Libya. And it became this odd thing where for the first time that I can remember, the Republican nominee was rhetorically less of a hawk than the, than the Democratic nominee. I mean, that, I think if you look at the campaign, that that's overall Good true. And it's weird. Now, yeah. of course, Trump was saying things like we're going to carpet bomb uh, ISIS. And so not that he was like a, like a peacenik, but just compared to Hillary Clinton in terms of their policies, like he was, she was arguing for a no-fly zone in Syria, for example, and he was criticizing that. He was saying that basically she wanted to cause World War III, and he was right. So it was weird. And I don't think, you know, personally, my judgment of him is I don't think he was sincere. Mm. I don't think he really had any intention of, like, you know, rolling back the national security state. But I do think that he had his finger on the pulse of the electorate who was sick of war and sick of sending their kids off to die in wars. And I think he was speaking to them in a way that no major presidential candidate ever had, you know, at, at least at least that I can remember. So I do think that right. that played a role in from the point of view of the national security state of making him an enemy and someone that they needed to keep under wraps and constrain and even undermine. And I think Russiagate was a good way not just to kind of curtail him, but also to stigmatize the appeal of his rhetoric. And again, I'm not arguing that his rhetoric was genuine. I'm not saying that Trump was a peacenik or that he ever intended to do anything, but... You're, you're being too hard on him, uh, Aaron. <laughs> I mean, look, I mean, it, it seems like, uh, uh, you know, and you know, we can never get into these kind of what is the true motives, but on, yeah. it seems like on some things, and this is no defense of this character, Trump, but on so, some foreign policy issues, uh, it seemed he was probably fairly sincere. I mean, even in Syria, I mean, you know that... Uh, uh, well, at least we know from from the reporting of people like Gareth Porter, uh, whether it's Syria, Afghanistan, even the Koreas, uh, I, I think he was genuinely at loggerheads with with the national security state. What do you think, Aaron? <laughs> well, certainly his rhetoric was, and you know it's yeah. true. I can't get inside his head, and you're right. I shouldn't try. Uh, he his rhetoric was certainly in huge contradiction with, with the national security state in 2016. And he was talking, he also was saying the truth about Syria, where he was saying that we were basically arming Al Qaeda, which is true. That actually was true. I mean, there's an infamous email from Jake Sullivan, right. who's now Biden's national security advisor. But back when he was an aide to Hillary Clinton, he wrote to her in, Feb in 
in early 2012, February, February 2012, the early years of the Syria dirty war, he said to her, Al-Qaeda is on our side in Syria. And so that was acknowledged privately. But Trump, when he comes along, he was saying things publicly, what people like Jake Sullivan were only willing to acknowledge privately. So that made him a, a problem. And he was talking about shutting down the, the dirty war in Syria. I mean, he was saying that. And so, you know, I've always speculated, as you suggest, that basically the motive for the national security state officials who push Russiagate, who fed false leaks to the media to push this narrative that Trump was a Russian asset. I've always suspected that Syria was a very big motive for them because look, from their point of view, they spent billions of dollars on this thing. This was like one of their biggest projects, the dirty war in Syria. According to the Washington Post, the budget for the for Timber Sycamore, the CIA program in Syria, was a billion dollars a year. One dollar out of every $15 in the CIA's budget. So is it plausible that when Trump comes along and he's telling the truth about Syria and he's talking about shutting down that program, that they then use this Russiagate thing to undermine him? I, I would not be surprised at all. I can't prove it, but I wouldn't be surprised. And by the way, one of the biggest Russiagators was John Brennan, right. who was the head of the CIA during Timber Sycamore. So to me, it's totally plausible. And um, in terms of your first question about how Republicans have responded, it's interesting. I mean, there's... I think there's two strains. You have the elected Republicans who, you know, are just as hawkish as the Democrats overall on Russia. I mean, Trump was an aberration in talking about cooperation, but for almost everyone else, it's pretty much the same thing. Then you have some people who like their angle is they want to cooperate with Russia, but not for the reasons that I would advocate cooperating with Russia, which is just for the sake of world peace. And because here you have two nuclear powers, like cooperation is good. Their, their point of view is their point of view is they want to take on China, right. <laughs> and so kind of kind of like kind of right. like Nixon wrote right. about for over forty years ago, they want to basically bring um, Russia on board to confront China. So there's to the extent there's a split. I think that's the split is you have some Republicans who actually want to get along with Russia because they want to take on China, and then you have others who just you know are still in the Cold War and Russia's the enemy and Vladimir Putin's the devil. So that to me, it, yeah. What, what about the social base, Aaron? Why were they not, uh, you know, in, in an uproar uh, about this? I mean, you know, they're obviously exposed to the same stuff about uh, uh, Trump and, and Putin. I mean, these folks, you, one would think that they would be like, you know, what the heck is going on? Uh, wh- why, why weren't they not outraged at this? Outraged at, at Russia? At, at, at the, the idea, unless you're, unless we assume that they were much more sophisticated in their understanding and, and were able to see through the propaganda, why were they not equally propagandized in, into this Russia gate thing and, and then equally outraged, I guess. Well, maybe that's a, ref- I don't know, but maybe that's a reflection that like, that they want candidates to talk about concerns that impact their lives. And they saw this obsession about Russia as just a complete elite fixation. You know, and there's also like there's I mean, for everybody, there's also a certain condescension embedded in the Russiagate narrative, which is that American voters are so malleable that Vladimir Putin's army of cyber bots and memes can brainwash them. You know, it, it's totally elitist. And I, I think, you know, I, I, like I, I, if I were a Republican, I'd you know, I'd be I, I'd find that to be, you know, obviously people already see Democrats as out of touch and elitist, but certainly Something like Russiagate would only, to me, reinforce that right. narrative. 
Absolutely. And I think arguably, I mean, I'm speaking about the Trumpian base, but, you know, this, arguably even the Democratic the base that obviously the leadership has abandoned, arguably they weren't too interested in either. And, and the exact point that you're making here, that kind of the, the elitist contempt uh, embedded in the idea that they can be, and this was totally in the 2016, the, uh, you know, you, you've spoken about this at length, how, for example, African-American voters were duped uh, and, you know, Sand, uh, Sanders support. So, I mean, I, I think uh, I think this probably applies overall uh, to, to the uh, to the ordinary American. Hillary Clinton literally said that the reason black people in Michigan didn't vote for her is because of Russian bots. It's the most it's, it's not just moronic. The idea that like these dumb Russian yeah. social media ads that nobody saw and that weren't even about the election influenced a single vote. But it's also racist. It's deeply racist to, to for Hillary Clinton to tell black people that they didn't vote for her. They stayed home because they got brainwashed by Russian social media. It's insane. <laughs> and it, it speaks to how Absolutely. just normalized that racism is that it, that she doesn't get canceled for that because it's so insane. But again, with Russiagate, it just normalized this kind of condescending, self-serving behavior. Absolutely. Aaron, thanks so much. Your work continues to inspire us even here in Pakistan. I appreciate that. Thanks, Amit. Thank you. Bye-bye. Jesse, you are coming in now. Remember to unmute yourself. Hey, Aaron, you hear me? Okay. Yes. Uh, Thanks for doing this. And and thanks, David, for having him on here and for creating this app. Um, So I wanted to talk... Uh, and sort of get your opinion specifically on Manafort's relationship with uh, with Oleg Deripaska and the Russian government. So Deripaska, of course, is an oligarch, um, controls a very large industrial group in Russia that does energy and metals, and he's a very close associate of Putin, right? He, um, according to diplomatic cables, he's one of the two or three closest people with Putin. Uh, Putin regularly stays at his homes, puts his mistresses in Deripaska's homes and his family, both in Russia and abroad. They travel abroad together all the time. Um, so, you know, as you know, Manafort worked for Deripaska for a number of years. Um, and then in 2016, uh, he appeared to want to use um, his role in the Trump campaign to to deal with some financial issues that he had with Deripaska. So at the time he was being sued by Deripaska and he was trying to reclaim some money for, for work Manafort had done in the past. Right. So we saw it in this email exchange that Manafort, you know, then the Trump campaign manager uh, thought that he could use uh, his role in the Trump campaign to make himself whole, right. Get whole was his, were his exact words uh, with Deripaska. Right. Um, And so as part of that, we saw from email records and from sworn testimony of Manafort's deputy, uh, Gates, um, we saw that Manafort was sharing, you know, internal campaign data with Oleg Deripaska, right? Um, so, you know, Gates reported that he was sharing daily WhatsApp messages with Kalimnik and Kalimnik was sending them to Deripaska's deputy. Um, and then Gates was deleting everything on WhatsApp every day. Uh, because, of course, you know, they knew that this was not really on the up and up, right? Um, so it seems like this is a pretty straightforward case of Trump's campaign manager, uh, you know, specifically back-channeling with the Russian government 
and providing them sensitive internal campaign data. And Manafort apparently was doing this for his own financial reasons, right? We don't have any any reason to think that this was ideological, that it was some anti-American thing or some pro-Russian thing. It was just financial for him. And he'd been lying to the IRS about his income for many years at this point, and he was kind of in a hole, right? So he was trying to get that money back from Deripaska, his, his former uh, employer. So my question for you is, um, you know, shouldn't we consider this to be a straightforward case of the Trump campaign colluding with the Russian government? Now, we, we may not know how much Trump knew about it, right? But this is the campaign manager very clearly, very directly colluding with a close Putin aide, right? Uh, so so uh, what do you think about that? Well, the problem is I don't accept the factual assertions that you've made that underline your question. That So it's difficult. Um, you might turn out to be correct. It's, it, it, it's hard to... Uh, which, which specifically well, are you... So are the, you... the claim that Kalimnik sent polling data to Deripaska, Kalimnik told me when I interviewed him that he has not spoken to Deripaska or anyone around him in years. He tried to, he tried to get in touch with him, but he wasn't able to. And he says that there was no polling data that went from him to Deripaska and that really the, the, that, that, the, yeah. the, that the recipients well, of the polling data were Ukrainian oligarchs, not Russian ones. And, and the reason was, as Rick Gates testified, is that Paul Manafort you know, was in a lot of debt and he wanted to show to people he was valuable. He was the campaign manager of a presidential campaign and he wanted to show people that he was you know, in with someone who was viable, who might win. And that's why he sent it to these Ukrainian oligarchs, not Deripaska. And um, there, I've seen no evidence that any of this went to Deripaska, so it's hard for me to contradict Kalimnik. Um, and, uh, and look, and the other problem is, as Rick Gates also said, this idea that this was like sensitive polling data, what Rick Gates says, and Kalimnik says too, is that this was top-line data, like basically numbers like Trump 50, Clinton 49, in Michigan, things like that. It wasn't like sensitive material. And it was also dated. And given that Rick Gates was like basically the Mueller team's only witness on this issue, this this whole thing about the polling data started with Rick Gates and it ended with Rick Gates. He was their main guy for this. And there's no other evidence so far that contradicts his story. I give him a lot of credence. You know, he wasn't pardoned by Trump. Um, he he uh, he suffered a lot for this. So I see no reason for him to lie. And what he says is that basically this went to Ukrainians and it was not sensitive. So that's why it's hard for me to answer your question because I, I don't accept the 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 factual premise that that it's based on. Okay. Well, it sounds like you you are accepting some of these premises, right? You're accepting that Paul Manafort, the campaign manager, was in debt to Oleg Deripaska, right? A very high level associate of Putin. Uh, and you're accepting that. But even there, but look, look, even there, Manafort claims that Deripaska owed him money. You know, I, like Deripaska did sue Manafort. That's true. And Deripaska claimed that Manafort, but Manafort also, they had a dispute. Like we can agree on that. Uh, and they had a, and right. they had yes. some kind of, we agreed and, that they had a dispute. There was a dispute between a, a political operative who had been lying to the IRS for a while and a Russian oligarch who, you know, clearly has billions of dollars and has the ear and respect of Putin. Right. And the and Paul Manafort, the, the campaign manager, was trying to get something out of the other guy. Right. The question of whether he was owed money or whether he was just trying to forestall this lawsuit 
isn't quite relevant, right? We, we can agree that Manafort was trying to use this position to get something of value from his associate in the Russian government, correct? We can agree that Manafort was trying to use his position to get to show people, including Deripaska, that he was valuable and he wanted money, <laughs> basically. And he wanted business, he want, you know, which to me is very standard in Washington, D.C. It's not, to me, evidence of any kind of conspiracy. It's basically just classic horse trading. He's trying to show to people that he's valuable at a time when he needs money. And, you know, and, the, and the evidence connecting him to Deripaska in this respect is a lot thinner because while it's acknowledged that Kalinnik sent this stuff to Ukrainians, there's no evidence that I've seen, and you can correct me if you think I'm wrong, showing that Kalimnik sent this to Deripaska. And by the way, there is evidence showing that Kalimnik also sent this stuff to Americans. That, that's even in the Mueller report. There's a footnote with all the correspondence between Kalimnik and Americans. And he's basically sending the same polling data to a bunch of Americans because he was in touch with them. And he was trying to tell them that actually Trump, he, th- he thought, had a chance to win. So any kind of interaction can be spun in a really suspicious way. But just consider the possibility that really that there's, this is not a conspiracy here, that it's actually just benign interactions or at worst, it's Manafort trying to show to people that he's valuable. Right. No one's, no one's saying anything about benign interactions. That doesn't really make sense in this context, right? The, the scenario that we've agreed that we've outlined here is that there was a campaign manager for the U.S. presidential campaign who was trying to enrich himself by sharing information with the Russian government that he only had access to because he was the campaign manager, right? That's, that's but I don't, but, but no, no, but, but again, no one's bringing I, uh, in conspiracy no, no, wait, wait, or anything like that. But wait, wait, I, you say he was sharing information with the Russian government. There's no, what I'm saying is there's no evidence to support that at all. And that's it. I'm saying he's sharing information with Oleg Deripaska, who we know is a I'm saying, close. I'm saying he expressed interest to his aide Kalimnik in sharing stuff with Deripaska. Yes. And, right. and, and, so and, and I'm looking at, I'm looking at the report right now. Manafort later followed up with Kalimnik to ensure his messages had been delivering, emailing on April 11, 2016, to ask Kalimnik whether he had shown our friends about this stuff. Kalimnik said absolutely every article. Manafort said, has Oleg seen this? Kalimnik wrote back the same day, yes, I have been sending everything to Victor, who is Deripaska's deputy, who has been forwarding the coverage directly to Deripaska. So yes, according to the Mueller report, this was getting through to Deripaska. According to Kalimnik, right? And we've got email okay. right of this. Right. Okay. Right. And so what Klimnik told me is that he actually that he made no contact at all with Deripaska. And look, but look, let's take your argument that that uh, that l- let's take your claim at face value that basically Kalimnik did reach Deripaska. Then you have to assume make another leap, which is that Deripaska is somehow deeply involved with the Russian government and they're doing what? They're they're running a, a social media campaign based on this polling data. And if so, you you think it's a leap to say that Deripaska is involved in the Russian government? Deripaska, the oligarch who runs a massive industrial and, you know, massive energy and metals company with Putin, who vacations with Putin all the time, who hosts Putin's mistresses in Deripaska's home. You think it's a stretch to say I'm saying it's a leap. I'm saying uh, I didn't say that. I'm saying it's a leap to us. You said leap. No, what I said is what, what I said is a leap is to assume that Deripaska is involved in some kind of deep Russian influence operation to interfere in the election. And it's especially strange because if you look at what Russia actually put out via this troll farm, it's ads that nobody saw and that are barely about the election. That's the theory of the case. The theory of the case is that 
Deripaska got this polling data from Manafort, and then Russia used that for their interference operation. That's the theory, right? And I'm saying it's a strange one to make when you look at the contents of what that supposed influence operation was. It's ads on social media that no one saw and they're barely about the election. It's a pretty odd interference campaign. That's the part that I so find strange. It sounds like, right. So it sounds like you're making a claim that they didn't do a very good job at the influence operation. Right. And you think, oh, well, I'm saying there's no, no, I, I'm saying there's no, ev- I'm saying there's no evidence for the influence operation. It's that's a, that, that's a claim made by U S intelligence officials. John Brennan did claim that. But the underlying evidence for that is what? We haven't seen it. Maybe they're right. I don't know. I don't know what they have. What I'm saying is everything I've seen so far undermines that claim. Well, the thing is, you don't actually have to have to address you know, whether or not you think these were effectively done, influence operations, or which exactly pieces of the data they use to inform their troll farm operation. What I'm saying here is that what we do know and we know this from email exchanges, and we know this from direct sworn testimony from people who, have, who, as you say, you know, have not been pardoned, who are actually doing time, and who gave their testimony. What we know is that Trump's campaign manager fed internal campaign information to Oleg Deripaska, right? I'm not making a claim about, about how effectively Deripaska then used that information. The claim I'm making is that Trump's campaign manager gave that info Right to Oleg Deripaska, who we know is very close with Putin, right? So it's hard for me to to see how that can be described as anything other than the Trump campaign colluding with the Russian government, right? Okay, I got you. So look, I think um, we could debate this all night, but I do want to get to other people. I I hear your point. I guess my point is, and I'll give you the final word, I think you're making a lot of leaps. I think you're assuming... That not only is Eric, is Oleg Deripaska deeply connected to the Russian government, but that he's also involved in some kind of Russian interference campaign in the election, for which I haven't seen the evidence for. And that somehow then they're using this polling data for that operation. Maybe you're right. It's possible. Like anything's possible. It's possible that, that there was a P-tape until that recently collapsed. But it's possible. I just don't think there's evidence for it. And I think it's a leap to assume that it's true. But – you know, um, it's it, it's certainly possible. There's, I'll just say that you know, I the this idea that just because a Russian oligarch is an oligarch means they're deeply involved with the Russian government. It's like, is Jeff Bezos deeply involved with the U.S. government, or is he just a really wealthy, powerful person? I don't know uh, enough about Russia to say that Oleg Deripaska is some kind of aide to Vladimir Putin and works closely with him. But that's what. The Senate intelligence report says that he's like basically conducts operations on Putin's behalf. I haven't seen the evidence for that. And I, I don't like to make claims about foreign countries that I, uh, that I haven't been in personally. I haven't deeply investigated. And I think there's, there, it, that is done too easily, especially in the U.S. when it comes to claims made about designated enemies. But you, I, you, you get the final word and then we'll move on to the next caller. Okay, sure. Um, I, I appreciate your reluctance to sort of go overboard in making claims here, but this this isn't actually a leap, right? Like, it, it's well understood that this is how Russian oligarchs work, right? That they are given the blessing by Putin and are allowed to be wealthy and live fabulous lives. And as a consequence, they serve him, right? It's not like America. In America, Bezos can get rich. He can just say, fuck the president, and it's totally fine, and no one will take his money. Right. 
But in Russia, you have to toe the line. You can't just be an anti-Putin dissident and be a billionaire in Russia, right? That's not how it works. They come and take your money and they put you in prison. And I think you have seen enough of Russia to know that that's true. So, you know, it, it's strange to me that you're unwilling then to make the leap to say that Oleg Deripaska, who was receiving this information from Trump's campaign manager, didn't share that with with Putin. You think he was he was just holding this this is his little secret that he's keeping? You don't think this incredibly powerful connection that he has with the campaign manager of the U.S. presidential candidate at the time, right? Who they think maybe has a 50-50 chance of winning, right? You think he's just hoarding that relationship for himself? He's not sharing this with Putin? I don't think that makes a lot of sense, right? I think most people who are paying attention don't think that that makes sense. Now, I'm not saying Garaposka single-handedly ran this influence operation and he bought all the troll farm stuff. What I'm saying is that he very, very likely, right, uh, shared this information with Putin and how Putin uh, operated once he had possession of this internal Trump campaign data that was shared with him by the campaign manager, I don't know for certain, right? You don't know either. But I, I just, and I'm not sure you want to continue addressing this, but I just don't see how you can say like, oh, nothing suspicious here. You know, it's all, it's all totally cool. Just the campaign manager sharing information with a very close Putin associate. All right. I, I, I'm not saying nothing, nothing suspicious, but I just think that the official story to me makes sense. Again, recall Rick Gates, who was the person who supplied all this information, said that the aim was for Manafort to show off to Ukrainian oligarchs that he was valuable. And the Mueller report, yeah. it says there's some line where they say that we, can, we couldn't identify a connection between Manafort's sharing of the polling data and Russia's interference in the election. So they couldn't find any, any connection either. Yeah. So I just um, – look – you might be right. It's possible, but 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 that but that to me is the problem with this whole RussiaGate thing. Is anything is possible? It's it's so hard to uh, disprove to 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 disprove a negative. It, it just is, and and that's how it works. So any theory can can be put out there, and even now, like the P tape could still be possible. There's nothing disproving it, even though we found out that the key source for it is a liar. It it's just very easy for these things to run wild. And again. But look, I think we're going in circles because I've identified what I think are the flaws in your argument. I think you make leaps. I think you make assumptions about the nature of this polling data, also the nature of Deripaska's ties to the Kremlin and the fact that even if he is deeply tied, that somehow that means that they were involved in a Russian election interference operation in 2016. But um, you, you think that there is something damning there. And, and I and look. Maybe when Durham comes out with his report, we'll get something more on this. And and I do hope that, that things are cleared up more. I just, where I stand, I haven't seen the evidence for the kind of supposition you're putting out. Okay. Um, well, I mean, if, if you don't want to engage further, that's okay. I, I appreciate your time. Although, again, I, I, you don't have to make the leaps, right? It's You can just simply say uh, that... Trump's campaign manager shared sensitive internal campaign data in order to enrich himself with the Russian government. We don't know what happened next, but I got you. You can agree that that is that 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 happened, and that that is a thing that should not happen, and is in fact criminal, right? And that it was correct to investigate when it became clear that this thing had happened, right? And I, and I will I stop at he shared it to enrich himself. That's 
proven. He shared it to enrich himself. That's what Rick Gates said. He wanted to drum up business. But at the, at the same time, this polling data was shared with Americans because people were, Kalimnik was also talking to Americans he knew because he knows a lot of Americans about the election. So it's just, I don't necessarily adopt the most sinister interpretation. And I guess let's leave it at that. But Jesse, I'll be doing this again. So if you want to come back and talk about this more, we can. But I, I do want to get to other people. So thank you. Thank you. Okay, Siddharth, you are next. Hi, Aaron. I have a question about Lev Parnas and Mike Flynn. Uh, Lev Parnas was elevated by Rachel Maddow. Um, he just is he just someone Giuliani met in Ukraine that he bought cigarettes from or something <laughs> like that? And Mike Flynn stands accused of being an agent of the Turkish government, but internally, according to your reporting, he was very critical of the Turkish actions in, in Syria uh, with respect to Timbisic Moore. So what's the truth in both those uh, areas? And uh, would you be willing to debate Julia Ioff or Rene DeRester to explore this? Thanks. Um, I, would debate, I would debate anybody. And that's been part of the problem with Russiagate. That's, I think, why it persisted for so long is because the people who are pushing it, I think, were so resistant to debate i mean that's why you never saw anybody on cnn or msnbc bring on people like myself or glenn greenwald or matt taibbi because if they were i think so confident in their views they would have been able to defend them in a debate in a debate but it just didn't happen and that's why i think it, it's, it's persisted for so long um in terms of left Parnas, i forgot about him but yes that's really funny that's another strange character who was like a hero for a couple of days when he was considered the person who was going to bring down Donald Trump. It was like this never ending parade of people who were going to save us from Trump. You know, Michael Avenetti, the lawyer, Stormy Daniels, Michael Cohen, Robert Mueller. It never ended. And Lev Parnas was one of them. And uh, now he's forgotten about it. He, he emerged. And I remember he claimed that he could vindicate the narrative around the impeachment where he said he could prove that Trump froze the weapons assistance to Ukraine uh, in exchange for an investigation of the Bidens. He had evidence of that, but that never materialized. And of course it didn't because Lev Parnas was just so another hustler who was just trying to gain his, you know, 15 minutes of fame. And he succeeded in that. He was a hero for a couple of days. And I think he also thought that Democrats could help him with his legal troubles which he, he tried to solicit. Actually, if you remember this, he wrote to Democrats and asked them for, actually, you know, actually, no, maybe I'm confusing him with Michael Cohen. I, I, Michael Cohen definitely did this, but I think Lev Parnas did this too. Basically, he tried to get Democrats to help him out with his legal troubles, but, you know, they couldn't save him because he had a criminal case and he pled guilty and he was quickly forgotten. But it just, he's an example of just how, insane it was that for four years instead of talking about actual policies that impact people's normal lives every day there was some new character who in the trump reality show except the, the reality show was being put on by trump's opponents msnbc and cnn and the democrats to in this failed bid to bring down trump and it just of course it didn't work because there was nothing there but it's it's funny you bring him up in terms of Michael Flynn in Turkey, I mean, he definitely was lobbying for them. That's just true. And yeah, he was honest about the dirty war in Syria. He spoke the truth. It, it, it was under his watch that the Defense Intelligence Agency put out a report in August 2012, pretty early on in the Syria dirty war, 
that said the truth, that said that Turkey and the U.S. are supporting the insurgency, and the insurgency is driven by the Muslim Brotherhood and al-Qaeda. And Michael Flynn apparently was honest about that internally, and, and that didn't win him very many friends inside the U.S. government. And as you say, later on, he went to lobby for Turkey and work for them. And um, so I guess there is a bit of a contradiction there. Flynn is an interesting character. He's There's times when he says the truth and times when he says things that are completely unhinged. So I, um, you know, I don't know exactly what his views are or where he's coming from. He's, he's hard to figure out. But <clears throat> certainly there was a time when he was telling the truth about Syria and I'd be curious to see what he says about it now, given that since then he's, he's been working for the Turkish government. Okay. And all right. So, Sean, you are next. Hey, Aaron. Kiss him back on for round two. Thanks a lot. Um, yeah, just uh, another point that I thought was really uh, interesting that I don't think has gotten a lot of attention, um, which is the so-called uh, Trump Tower meeting, uh, June 9th, 2016. This is what happened with uh, Donald Trump Jr. and um, Natalia Lasonitskaya, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, which I'm sure I'm not. Obviously, this was like the kind of thing that you can't defend. Like the emails were pretty clear. It's like, we're offering our assistance and this is our appreciation on behalf of the Russian government. Um, and this is something that's been pointed to a lot very fairly is like, I, it's been characterized as welcoming or inviting the uh, assistance of uh, the Russian government in the campaign. Uh, something that's been ignored, I think is uh, this testimony that Glenn Simpson gave in August 22nd of 2017. And it's very interesting to uh, read the transcripts because the questioner definitely knows that he met with Natalia Vesanitskaya the day before and the day after this meeting. And when yes. you read this transcript, it's fascinating yeah. because Glenn Simpson is very vague. He's like, yes, I remember her. I met her in the summer. Uh, how about June? Yes, twice. When? June 8th and June 10th, he immediately knows that the questioner knows that they've met. This is something that gets very little attention, um, but he's very vague, and then he immediately cops to it. And for a guy that has his hand in every other aspect of this, he has foreknowledge of the Alpha Bank story. He's creating the Steele dossier and shepherding it into the press and FBI. And then he's involved in this as well. It's just way too <laughs> coincidental to ignore. <laughs> yeah. And I find this absolutely fascinating that people just, like David Frum, I don't know why people listen to this guy, but he mentions this meeting without mentioning this aspect. It's like, okay, do you not know? Or are you, are you ignoring it? Either way, I'm not listening because this is fascinating. So... I know that this has gotten my attention. I'm sure it's gotten yours, but is this something that you have, like, I'll just put it this way because I'm asking for a comment, but have you like pursued this? Yes or no. Like, is this something that you find like is um, something that you've tried to follow up on or anything like that? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. 
So for, for people who are not familiar, basically what Sean's talking about here is that the the supposed smoking gun incident where Don Jr. and Jared Kushner meet with some Russians in Trump Tower, that the day before that meeting, the key Russian in that meeting, Natalia Veselnitskaya, met with Glenn Simpson, who was the co-founder of Fusion GPS, the firm behind the Steele dossier, the dossier that alleged this Trump-Russia conspiracy. And they were working together. Veselnitskaya was working with Glenn Simpson, which is just either it's an amazing coincidence or it's a part of a setup. Uh, of the Trump campaign to basically try to connect them falsely with Russia. And I don't know what to make of it. You know, you, that, that's the problem is you never know. You never know. It really could just be a coincidence in the same way that like, you know, this guy, Charles Dolan, who is, shows up in this recent indictment of Danchenko, he turns out to be a key Clinton world figure. And he's worked for the Clintons before. He was appointed to a board by Bill Clinton and he ends up giving Danchenko some claims that are used in the Steele dossier. Is that a coincidence or does that mean that the Clinton world knew that they were feeding false claims into the dossier? Personally, I think it's a coincidence. I just think it's just one of these funny things where for all the effort to connect Trump to Russia, there's actually much deeper connections between the Clintons and Russia. Not that I think that's nefarious, but just it's an irony. And so in terms of what is happening here, you're right. It's – um it's very glaring. I'd love to know more. And I just, I've, I've, I have tried to look into it, but I didn't get very far. So hopefully that's something that John Duran clears up. That would be nice. But if, if anyone gets the opportunity to read that five paragraphs of that transcript, I think you'll be pretty compelled to wonder about it because <laughs> I mean, the, the back and forth between, between the uh, questioner and Glenn Simpson is they already know a lot more than they're letting on. So, yeah. I will definitely read that again. I, and uh, thanks for the tip, Sean. Thank you. Okay. And Jesse has come back. So, look, if you still want to talk about Manafort, you are in the queue. So I will oblige. But this will be the last caller, and then we'll, we'll call it a night. And it looks like Jesse, are you there? Okay, it looks like Jesse might have accidentally entered. So I'm going to wrap things here. Thank you so much to everyone for tuning in. This was a lot of fun. I love the chance to be able to speak to people. And uh, I hope to do it again more. And I hope you'll come back when I do this next. I'll be doing this weekly here on Collins, so there'll be many more opportunities. And right now I'm working on some new reporting about Syria, and we'll have a new article about that at the gray zone this week. And so there'll be more to discuss. Thank you so much for tuning in. I really, really appreciate it. And I hope you all have a great night. And um, if there are any additional comments, you can email me at uh, Aaron Mate at protonmail.com. The email is on my Twitter page and yeah, thank you for, for joining. I hope to see you again soon. Okay.